At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. Once again, good morning. We're glad that you're here with us today and uh, excited this morning. We're concluding our series that we've called The Essentials, Why Truth Matters. We're wrapping up this morning the Apostles' Creed and what we've been leading and teaching you in there with uh, the last couple statements. And so I'm encouraged to be able to do that with you, uh, with you today. What's the one thing that no one wants to acknowledge but everyone will experience? If your answer was taxes, you're technically correct. But if you thought of the word death, then you'd be thinking the same thing I am this morning. Death, if you had another answer, uh, you know, tell me afterwards, because I'd like to know what those things are too. Death is the one thing that nobody wants to acknowledge or face. And it's for sure the one thing that every one of us will experience. We, we will all die. Everybody. And, and we certainly don't want to face up to that reality because of the unknown of what it means once we die. Like, what does that look like beyond, beyond death? What's, what's there for us? And, and standing in the realm of the living, as it were, we struggle to acknowledge death because it carries such pain and uncertainty for us. Uh, the, the man on the screen that you're about to see, his name is Ralph. And if you, if you think that he looks a little bit familiar, uh, it's because Ralph is my grandfather. Uh, the little baby in the picture is my daughter, Allison, uh, by, the well, by the way, as well. Uh, Ralph was married to my grandmother, Mary, for 56 years. He had three daughters, eight grandchildren. I was the oldest grandchild. Ralph and I were very, very close, and I think for one reason, that was because uh, he turned 45 years old the year I was born, and I'm 45 right now, so it's kind of uh, boggling in my mind, but I was his first grandchild, and I was the first boy in, in the family as well, and my grandfather desperately wanted a son. Alas, he had three daughters. And so when I came along, there was this immediate joy and connection. I was practically to him a son. I have a ton of fond, good memories with Ralph and the life that we shared together. A lot of things that make me smile and laugh. Many things that I go, we were so dumb. <laughs> and a few things that make me just tear up. Uh, Ralph's vocation was that of a professional firefighter. He, he served the Inglewood, Colorado Fire Department for 22 years and retired from that profession. Uh, he was in the Marine Corps during the Korean War, uh, and I think because of those two experiences, Ralph knew how to cook. He could make a mean chili. We called it Darth Vader chili, and his biscuits and gravy for breakfast were unbeatable. Uh, Ralph was also a skilled worker. He picked up the, the trade of uh, bricklaying or being a mason and became very, very good at that. 
And so after his retirement from the fire department, he uh, moved to central Missouri and built houses and other monuments and things there. He was a humble servant. He worked hard. My grandfather was a comedian, always able to pull off a practical joke. He was the funniest man. And my grandfather loved Jesus. I think this is the thing I need to tell you most about him. It was evident to me. He loved Jesus. He was so involved in his local church, serving as both a deacon and Sunday school teacher. He went on as many short-term mission trips as he could. He taught the Bible Sunday after Sunday uh, to the men's, small, uh, men's Sunday school class at his church. And, and I just remember uh, whenever we were with my, he and my grandmother, uh, spending time with them over a weekend on Saturday evening after dinner, he'd just say, hey, guys, I'm... I'm out, and he would go into the, uh, into the kitchen area where there was a table, and he would be sitting at the kitchen table with his Bible open and a few other resources and books, studying and preparing to teach the scriptures to these men uh, on the next Sunday morning. I love my grandfather. Probably picked up more from him than I can tell you, both some of the good characteristics and some of his flaws as well. And sadly to me, on January 21st of 2010, 13 years ago, Ralph died. There are often days I think about him, I want to talk with him, and one of my, in the Bible that's on my desk down in my office that I use when I'm studying, in, in there I have a picture of, of Papa Ralph there that I come across all the time and makes me think of him, and I miss him, I do. Death brings that pain that's hard to articulate. And I'm pretty sure that every one of us here in this room, in one way or another, have encountered and experienced the death and loss of a loved one, someone that's near to us. And so we feel that pain and that loss and that, that separation. And yet, I want to tell you, my grandfather, as a follower of Jesus, being a faithful follower of Jesus, he had a hope that although death separates us for a time, death is not the final word. My grandfather believed what the Apostles' Creed teaches in its final two affirmations. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. You see, my grandfather's faith, which I share and which I commend to you today, was a faith that believed that God, what God did in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he will also do for everyone who believes and trusts in him. And this faith is established not just on our ideas or our speculations, it's established on what Jesus himself said about those who die, what the Bible teaches about our future as Christians. You see, the Christian faith isn't just a faith about the here and now, not just the, the present moment. The Christian faith has a future hope. It points us to a glorious day. And so we could say we believe that death isn't ultimate, it's not the last thing, but that for, for Christians... For all of us, resurrection is coming. Resurrection is coming. The Bible is clear that there is a future resurrection from the dead to eternal life for everyone who believes. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 5. He says, an hour is coming, a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus himself says, resurrection is coming. And so the question is, what are we doing with that? Does it negate the experience that death is a certainty? But because resurrection is coming, Jesus' words challenge us to think about that future resurrection day 
and to consider how we should live now in light of that coming day. Because one of the essential teachings of the Christian faith is that Christians will be resurrected and live forever, we should really think about how our belief today and now informs our view of death and practically how we should live. So I want to answer a key question for us this morning. How should we as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is aimed right at you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you, please think in and listen because I, I want to call to you and make an appeal to you this morning. But as, how should we as Christians live knowing that resurrection is coming? How does that future day when we will be made alive together with Christ, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, how will that future day impact now? And so I want us to go to one of the Apostle Paul's earliest letters, 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bible, please open it up to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. There's a Bible in the chair in front of you if you need one of those. But let's, let's all open up together to 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to read for us from verses 13 to 18. And I'd like to invite you to stand this morning as we hear God's word, as we listen to what Christ wants to say to us this morning. Let's listen to the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Paul here in this text, as we look at this last statement, we believe in the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. Paul here gives us three approaches to life and to death because resurrection is coming. He's, he's wanting to equip us to live now in light of the future, the glorious day when Jesus returns again. And so three things here for us to, to practice in our lives now. First of all, we should grieve with hope. The, the reality of the coming of Jesus Christ again, to raise those who are dead to life again, it informs us and calls us now to be able to grieve with hope. If we're honest, death separates us. It destroys the relationships that we had. I, I cannot go and talk to my grandfather, Ralph, anymore. My, my uh, time to chat with him and to laugh with him and to spend time, it's separated, it's gone. And death comes as a result of sin. Death is the heavy-handed power that hangs over each and every one of us. Every one of you has a date. You don't know it. I don't know it, but every one of us has a date on the calendar in which we will die. But for the Christian, death isn't the end. It's not the last word. It, 
It seems that in this church there were some questions about death and particularly some false teaching that was happening in this church about Jesus' second coming. So when Jesus comes again, what's going to happen, and particularly what's going to happen to those who have died believing in Jesus before he comes back again? So Paul is speaking to instruct and to equip and to encourage them. He, he says to the church, and he says to us this morning, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant about these things, and I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. He's teaching there so that there's clarity and faith about God's promises. So when Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who are asleep, he's not pointing out the people in the church who take a nap when he preaches. And that expression, that's not who he's talking about. He's using this expression of those who have fallen asleep as an expression of death. He's talking about Christians in the church who have died. They're awaiting their resurrection. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about what's going to happen to these fellow believers in order that you might not grieve as others do who have no hope. And see, Paul is acknowledging something very important here. Death is painful. And, and to lose someone that we love is, is painful as well. And so when someone dies, grief is the natural and right emotion and response that we should feel. Death is hard. Death is sad. Christians, you are right in crying and mourning over the death of a loved one. It, it should not be a moment for us to just put on a stoic face, have no emotions or no feelings. Scripture says here, Paul says to us, particularly as we grieve those who were followers of Jesus, we, we don't grieve like those who do not have hope. We have a different kind of grief. It's a hope-filled grief. It's a grief that looks forward to the promises of God and to the things he said he would do in raising us from the dead. Death isn't the last world word. In, in the pagan Roman world, death was seen as final. Death was seen as the end. There was nothing beyond it. And, and so when someone died, it was a hopeless grief. It was, a, it was just a, a wrenching heart moment. You don't have nothing left. One, I, I have one letter from a Roman citizen in the second century who was apparently not a believer. And I, I'll just paraphrase that letter to you uh, here. Uh, this is from uh, Sam to Tammy and Phil. Good comfort. I am sorry and wept over the death of your departed one, Benny. I did anything and everything I should, as did the rest of the family, to mourn. But nevertheless, there's nothing we can do against death. Comfort one another with these words. I don't know if you're comforted at all. I, please don't send me that postcard. That's not helpful. It's not encouraging. And that's because apart from Christ, there's nothing to offer. There's no comfort or hope to be able to, to hand over. So, so the Roman view of death was very final, very sad, and yet even they were trying to comfort with one another with nothing. But for the Christian, there is hope in our grieving, and here's why. Verse 14, it's built on the fact of the gospel, what Jesus has done. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Again, fallen asleep is language for those who have died. So we look back, Paul says, and we believe our faith is anchored in this, that because Jesus died and he himself rose again, even so, all of those who are in Christ, through Christ, God will raise up or bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
The, the scriptures point us to that last day when Jesus comes again. And here the promise is because Jesus died and rose again, he will bring with him all of those who have died in him, who are followers of Jesus. He will bring them with him again. They will be raised to life again. Paul is telling us that when Jesus comes again, everyone who has died in Christ will be raised again. They will have life. So for the Christian, death isn't the final reality. It's just the beginning. John Bunyan, he said it this way, death is but a passage out of a prison into a palace. Yes, death is hard. It is sad. It is disruptive. But for the follower of Jesus, it's not the last word. I miss my grandfather, Ralph. But I don't have to grieve his death like a non-Christian would because his hope was in Jesus. And because his hope was in Jesus, my hope being in Jesus, I know that the Papa, Ralph, will be made fully alive bodily one day again. I'm sad, but I can look forward to the future knowing I will be... I will be with him again. I will be with Christ again. Jesus is coming again. Ralph will be raised, and that encourages me. But it also should encourage how you and I live here and now. Let me put it this way. If those who believe in Jesus will be raised to life again when Jesus returns, then what we believe matters. It matters what you believe. So Jesus taught those who, who do not put their faith in him, who do not believe and trust in him, they will be raised too, but they will be raised to judgment, to hell. That's their future for all of those who don't trust in Christ. But those who put their faith and trust in Jesus will be raised to eternal life forever with him. So friends, there's, there's two roads. There is the narrow road, which through Christ we go, that leads to life forever. And then there is the broad road, the road that leads to judgment and to death. And, and so... What you do with Jesus in this life matters. If you believe and trust in Him, if your hope is banked on Him, your future is incredibly bright. But if you reject Jesus, if you turn from Him, if you, if you deny Him and, and have nothing to do with Him, if you won't believe in Him, judgment awaits you. And that means that we as believers have urgent work to do. That urgent work is to share Christ. It's to to, to acknowledge that many are headed towards death without Christ, and it is to make the name of Jesus known so that people can believe, so that they would trust in him. The life, this life is when we must decide what we're going to do with Jesus. And so my hope is for all of those family members and friends and people that I love who don't know Jesus, my hope is that they know Jesus. And I hope that that would be your hope as well, to have eternal life. And that means we've got to share the gospel with them. That they must come to Jesus themselves and believe and trust in him. So we should be praying for the salvation and conversion of our friends and family who don't know Christ. We should be sharing with them the love of God in Jesus Christ. The gospel and encouraging them and inviting them to trust Jesus and place their faith in him. Because he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one will get to heaven apart from Jesus. And so it's imperative for us to be sharing Jesus. If we can't share our faith and share what Christ has done for the world in, in rescuing us from our sins, do we really believe it for ourselves? For those that do know Christ and have trusted Christ, we can, we can celebrate with them, we can be glad and, 
And in that moment when they die, we can rejoice and grieve, be sad, but grieve as believers with hope because the resurrection is coming. Because the resurrection is coming, the first approach to life and death is to grieve with hope those who believe in Jesus and have died. But Paul keeps going, he has something more for us here. The second approach to life and death here is that because resurrection is coming, we should anticipate Christ's return. We should be thinking about that future day when he comes again. Now, Paul here does some instruction to the church about what Jesus has already taught. If you want to just match this up, you can go to Matthew 24 and 25. Remember here, Paul is instructing and teaching uh, the church. He's answering some questions and dealing with some of the false teaching in the church. And, and that false teaching is centered around what happens to these dead loved ones who are Christians. It's likely someone in the church or in that community was saying, you know what? If you die before Jesus comes again, you miss out. You're dead. The party's over. Nothing good for you. You just die. So you better hang on as long as you can because Jesus is going to come back and you want to enjoy that party. And Paul says, no, that's not the case at all. Paul says this in verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. He's like, I got this from Jesus and I'm passing it on straight to you. And here's that word. Here's this, this truth that comes from Christ himself. Now, I want you to be careful with this passage. Paul here is not writing a complete and exhaustive timeline of end time events. He's answering a very practical concern about what happens to our dead loved ones who believed in Christ. Are they gone for good? And his answer is no. Jesus is coming again, and he is going to raise them from the dead too. So he says, we declare this to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's an important cultural word that Paul uses here that to the Thessalonians would have grabbed their imaginations. They had a vivid experience of this in their own city culturally. Uh, the word in English is the coming. We want you to know that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, I think that, that phrase right there, the coming should be capitalized in our Bibles. It would be like saying the Super Bowl to us as Americans. Oh, we know what the Super Bowl is. That's a great thing. Or or the presidential inauguration. Oh, yeah, everybody knows what happens in Washington, D.C. at that point. That's a, that's a significant event. Or, or like yesterday, if you're British, the coronation of a king or a monarch. Oh, this is the great party and festival that goes on with that. When Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, but, but we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, that word, the coming, is the word, Greek word parousia. That would have had a specific reality to the Thessalonians. In Roman culture, a parousia, or a coming, was an official term for a visit of a person of high rank, especially a king or an emperor visiting a province. A parousia would be when this emperor would come to a city, and there would be huge festivities and ceremonies accompanying that. There would be lots of feasts and parades. In many of these events, there would be the coining or the minting of new coins, kind of uh, souvenirs or markers of that event. One scholar writes that on such visits, a delegation of leading citizens would typically go out of the city, meet the coming dignitary, and then formally in escort them into the city for the remainder of their journey. What Paul's saying here is that Jesus has a coming. He has a parousia, and when that happens, the dead in Christ won't miss the party. 
The, the, we who are alive will not proceed, will not go before, will not celebrate without those who have fallen asleep. But he, he continues to say, this is what it's going to be like. The dead in Christ won't miss the party. The Lord will descend, verse 16, from heaven. He will come down from the skies, from heaven, with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Jesus will come from heaven, and his coming will be very clearly announced. A booming cry, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, the Thessalonians, they would say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what a, a parousia, a coming, is like. It's like when the emperor gets close to town, and then someone, a herald, goes out and shouts the message, the emperor is coming, the emperor is coming. And there's trumpet fanfare, and everybody knows, here comes the emperor. Paul says the dead in Christ will be first to get up and go out to King Jesus at his coming. They will meet him in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, and Paul had that expectation that this would happen in his own lifetime. We're awaiting this, though. Those who are alive, who are left, they too will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So everybody who's in Christ, who's trusted in him, we will, we will rise up, as it were, the dead from their graves. Those who are living will be caught up together, raised up together to meet Christ in the air. We will, we will go out and meet him on his coming. And again, another word that's very important for this cultural concept is the word, the meeting. We will go out to meet him. It's, it's that idea and that construct in the parousia or coming of when the city people, the dignitaries of the city would go out, meet that person, and then come back to the city in a big parade or welcome. Here's what the point is. God's people will be a party of a welcoming committee going out to meet Jesus, coming up to meet him as he comes to establish his forever kingdom and make all things new. The movement described in this passage isn't a movement of Jesus coming, raising the dead to life, picking up those who are alive in the church, and then hoisting us up back to heaven itself. It's of Jesus coming down to earth again and raising up his followers, the living and the dead, meeting him in the air, and then descending back to earth as he sets up his kingdom as a king of kings and lord of lords. Friends, that's going to be an awesome day, and we should be eager for it. That day should be the day of our deepest longings when Christ comes again and makes all things new and all things right. Let me put it to you like this. We all have future dates on our calendar that excite us, that we're preparing for and living in light of those days. If you're engaged, you've got a, a, a wedding date on your calendar that you're just preparing for and excited about. Uh, right now, I have September 13th on my calendar as a day that hopefully I'll summit the tallest mountain in the uh, contiguous United States, Mount Whitney. I'm living now, preparing for that day, doing some training, making sure I have the right gear, making travel plans, all of those things to get ready so that I can be prepared to stand on the highest peak, all the stuff. But the day that should really be important and most ultimate is the day of Jesus' coming. Jesus has said, no one knows the day or the hour, but that hour, that day is certain. God has it on his calendar somewhere. We need to live anticipating and readying ourselves for that day. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for this day, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. Not be, not be coasting, not be passive, just lazy. You're like, oh, it'll happen whenever it happens. 
But be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. He's saying work out your salvation. Be ready. Pursue Christ. Pursue holiness. Eager to please Jesus. Get ready. The day of Jesus Christ and his coming is drawing near. His second coming is approaching. Do you anticipate that, friends? Are you eager for that day? Are you making preparation, even now in your life, by pursuing holiness, putting off sin, seeking to be at peace with brothers and sisters in Christ, sharing the gospel? Are you living now in light of that coming day? Because it will come. Jesus will come again. And that leads us to our third point, our third reality. Because resurrection is coming, we can approach living now and death by grieving with hope. We can live now anticipating Christ's return. And thirdly, we can comfort one another. This this passage is here to help us encourage and comfort each other. One of the problems that comes with talking about the second coming of Jesus is that we've got a culture full of dumb books and YouTube videos and podcasts with all sorts of speculative teaching and wild, goofy guesses about Jesus' second coming. Some of these teachers make greater jumps and leaps and twists with the Bible than the world's best Olympic gymnasts do. It's crazy. It completely misses the point. Do you know why Paul wrote this part to Christians, to this church? Not so that they could bunker down, get some crayons, draw out a timeline of the end, and then on an ammo ammo canister and wait for the rapture. His purpose in writing this to this church was in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. His, His aim is comfort, encouragement, spurring us on. And if you think about this, the the context of the Thessalonian church and what they've experienced and endured, this is a church that's really had a hard go of it. They are a suffering church. This church has just lost many of their friends and loved ones who have been persecuted and murdered by the Roman government because they believed and proclaimed Jesus is Lord, not Caesar as Lord. And so those who are alive in the church are sad. There's heaviness in their hearts about what the future holds and the loss of their loved ones. Friends, they aren't thinking about the end times and 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 2088. It's not even on their map. They want to know if their friends and family in the church are safe in Christ. So his whole point here is to give them language to encourage each other, to point them to the end and say, Jesus is coming, and all those who are dead in Christ will be raised to life again, and we will see him. And his point encouraging them is the last words of verse 17. And so, we will always be with the Lord. Friends, that's the Christian hope. That we will forever be with Jesus. When we say and profess the Apostles' Creed and we say, I believe in the life everlasting. Friends, that's what we mean. That we will have everlasting life with Jesus forever. If your concept of heaven is all the the, the pearly gates and the streets of gold and all of our friends and family, but Jesus isn't there, friends, that's not heaven. That's not Jesus' words for us. The hope is that we will be with Christ forever. We'll never be separated from him, never alone from him, 
always in the presence of our Lord and Savior. He is our great hope. He is our comfort. And yes, we will be with those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ as well. There will be a great family reunion, but we will be with Jesus forever. Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century pastor, put it this way. Whatever else you draw comfort from, neglect not this deep, clear, overflowing well of delight. There are other sources of good cheer in connection with the glory to be revealed, for heaven is a many-sided joy, but still none can excel the glory of communion with Jesus Christ forever. Friends, our joy is to tell each other when life is hard, when things are difficult, when suffering comes, when death appears, we will always be with the Lord. Our future in Christ is incredibly bright. So consider how much we need to encourage each other this way. This is the motivation that fuels our race, that fuels our life in Christ. That we need to look each other in the eyes, especially in hardship and suffering and even death, and, and say, brother, it's hard, I know it. I'm sad with you, I grieve with you. But look up. The day is coming when we will always be with the Lord. Sister, I, I know you grieve, and I grieve with you. But remember, the day is coming when we will always be with Jesus forever, and he will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more, neither suffering nor pain, and we will be with Jesus forever and ever. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, let us consider. Let us think about. Let us, let us draw encouragement from. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. We as Christians should always be uh, Graciously stirring up one another, challenging, encouraging one another towards love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, he says. We've, that's why community is so important. Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. The same word that Paul uses here. Encourage one another. Help one another along. Spur one another along. And all the more as you see the day approaching. That day is getting closer and closer and closer and closer. Either the day Jesus returns again or we die and we see him face to face, it is drawing near to us. Our lives are short and but a breath. Is this your hope? Is this your desire to be with the Lord forever? Then encourage one another with this. Encourage one another with the reality of Christ coming again. So let me remind you here and conclude of three ways that we should live now knowing that Jesus is coming. First, Whenever we face the death of a believer, we should grieve, but with hope. Secondly, let's anticipate Jesus' return. Let's be eager for it and prepare ourselves for the day he comes again. And thirdly, let's be a people that comfort and encourage one another in Christ. One of my grandfather Ralph's Bibles uh, is at home, and he wrote a lot in his Bible. That's why I've kept them. He's got notes everywhere. It's like talking with him in some way about the scripture when I look it up and see it. So the other day, as I was studying this passage, I asked Stephanie, hey, will you just open that Bible and take a picture of, of what's in this passage? I didn't know. What is he, what is he highlighted? And I noticed one word that he had circled, the word comfort or encourage. That's what, that's what Christ calls us here to. That's what we need to see, that, that we would be comforted and encouraged, even in facing death, that Christ is coming again, that death isn't the last word over us, but that Jesus rules and reigns, and so... Let's encourage each other towards that. Let's believe in Jesus. Let's believe resurrection is coming for all who trust in him. 
And let's comfort and encourage each other all the more as the day approaches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your love and for your son. Jesus, we thank you that you are coming again, that we will see you face to face and that all those who are in you will be made alive with you forever. We will always be with you. So Lord, I pray that these words would encourage and strengthen us as we walk in this life, that we would pursue holiness, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and and we would be ready for the day in which you come again, Lord Jesus that we would encourage and build up one another for your name. Thank you for the life everlasting, for the resurrection of our bodies, for the hope that we have in him. Spirit of God, bless us and, and lead us more to worship Christ. We thank you and we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.